Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Nottingham Playcast. The podcast is about to begin. Please take your seats. Hello again and welcome to the Amplified podcast. I'm Craig Gilbert, the Amplified producer at Nottingham Playhouse, and today I'm joined by Natalie Abrahami. Natalie is a theatre, opera and film director. She started out at the Royal Court as a graduate trainee before training with the Young Vic and National Theatre. She was awarded the James Mingus Kitchen Award for Emerging Directors in 2005. Between 2007 and 2012, Natalie was Artistic Director at the Gate Theatre in Notting Hill with Carrie Cracknell. During their tenure, they were awarded the Paul Hamlin Breakthrough Fund for Creative Entrepreneurs. Natalie then went on to join the Young Vic as Genesis Fellow and Associate Director. She's also been associate artist at Nuffield Southampton Theatres and at Hull Truck. Work for theatre and opera includes Swive, Sam Wanamaker Playhouse for Shakespeare's Globe, Anna at the National Theatre, The Meeting at Chichester Festival Theatre, Macanal at the Almeida, Wings, Happy Days, After Miss Julie and Our Wilderness for the Young Vic, and Queen Anne for the Royal Shakespeare Company Theatre Royal Haymarket. Her opera work includes How the Whale Became and Other Tales for the Royal Opera House. Alongside this, she's also made films including Mayday, The Roof and Life's a Pitch. Natalie and I were joined for this conversation by her brand new baby. So please enjoy this excellent chat that comes replete with ambient gurgling, crying and the occasional party interruption. Here's the brilliant Natalie Abrahami. Hello, Natalie, and thank you for joining us today on the Nottingham Playhouse Amplify podcast. How are you doing? Good, thank you. Thanks so much. I am. Um, I just realised. I'm so sorry. This, um, there are going to be some background noises from a small child, including some, you know, natural things that happen to children. So I just like heard massive fart noise, which is, you know, my three week old daughter. So apologies for the background um, foley effects. <laughs> no, that's all right. It makes it all the more authentic. Yes, um, <laughs> yeah um so what sorry no and it's not me that's the thing that's kind of terrifying <laughs> uh yeah um we will we book capitals at the top of the show notes when this goes out don't worry um what does uh social distancing look like for you what have you been up to well, social distancing is is kind of a bit odd um, for me because I I this little girl arrived on Friday the thirteenth, just sort of before the kind of all of the COVID sort of um, chaos and confusion and the sort of schools closing started. So um so in a way, actually having a sort of maternity period is a natural confinement, and that has coincided with um, a much larger social distancing that is continuing with you know the foreseeable future so I've kind of been holed up at at home with a small with a small baby and also with my other daughter who's now no longer at school so it's kind of been um a sort of um social distancing from everyone else and then very very proximate living with um my family how's how's homeschooling going are you learning to do lots of exciting things um I'm really really embracing um that teaching writing through Frozen is now my form of um, teaching, which I had never had never expected. My daughter hasn't even seen it, but via osmosis, um, Disney is a sort of you know virus, probably in and of itself. Um, she's obsessed. So we did Cosmic Kids Yoga Frozen this morning, and then we did some handwriting associated with that. So we're trying. <laughs> um, well, I mean, that does sound very exciting. So Natalie, tell me, where are you from? 
I was born in London um, um, and kind of educated there, sort of in southwest London, sort of suburbia. And I still I still live in London or there and I, I now live in North London. And um, what about your family? Are there any arts or artists in your family or are you the only the only one? Well, my my uncle, my mother's brother is a photographer called Barry Fridlander. And I guess I was always quite interested in photography. I think I thought photography might be something I wanted to do. Um, and indeed, indeed did some work experience kind of thinking about photography and advertising. And actually it was through that that I thought I wanted to be a theatre director. Apologies, I'm just going to rescue a small child. Um, and, um, and then my father is a documentary maker. And so I guess is interested in people's stories and storytelling. Um, aware of people telling wanting to tell other people's stories and investigating things in order to do that, but no no background in, in theatre as such. What kind of films does your dad make? So he he sort of did docu- documentaries kind of about different... Um, different. He made documentaries about um, people living rough on the streets. He made documentaries about people in, in cults. He sort of really liked to... It's not something he necessarily does anymore, but to immerse himself in other people's stories. And I think he was very good at getting people to tell them his story and a good listener. And so um, sort of, yeah, kind of did that sort of work um, and then has kind of moved a bit away from that. But when I was, certainly when I was younger, that was what he was doing. Uh, and where does your relationship with the theatre come from? Where did that begin? Well, my my mum really likes the theatre and often used to take me to our local theatre to see shows. I never, I never acted or wanted to act. That's sort of my idea of a living, a living nightmare and a kind of complete, complete terror of being on, on stage. But I've always liked watching those performances and she certainly took me to see, to see them. And then I think that gradually I just sort of, um, not even necessarily exactly knowing what a director was, but sort of started to, um, think about when we I don't remember sort of started to almost hear things when I would be reading plays in in school you know in in music in English lessons or um or kind of like even reading novels you know would be hearing them kind of spoken out loud and imagining them and sort of started to kind of go in that direction a bit so when did you uh when did you decide that uh this is the thing that I'm uh, I'm going to pursue this is the thing I'm going to make my living doing I'm not sure how conscious it was about making a living because I think I was always kind of like I don't know if this is ever gonna it's ever gonna work I remember saying to myself if I can support myself solely through theatre by the time I'm 30 then I can sort of continue making theatre and um so you know I kind of was always aware that it was quite a hard path to follow and wasn't sure if it would it would work out but it was suddenly an itch I wanted to scratch and so I wanted to I went to university and studied English literature but hoped that I'd be able to do a lot of directing and sort of test things out and see if it was something that was for me but actually in fact when I got to university I was very very insecure and not confident enough to do much directing so didn't really get a chance to test that out but I still felt intrigued by it as a prospect so I spent most of the time when I probably should have been revising for my final sort of surfing the very nascent internet for theatre jobs and found one at the Royal Court as a graduate trainee and so I worked there for six months, um, sort of doing administration. My only real skill is touch typing and um, working for the then artistic director, Ian, Ian Rickson. And then after that, they extended it for another six months and I got to assist him because they knew that I really wanted to do, to direct. And so I, I think it was only really there that I kind of thought, oh, this is this feels like a world that I want to be a part of. or I feel confident that this is the right place for me. 
Um, and I want to, I felt so inspired by the passion of the people working in that building and their commitment to kind of finding new voices and launching them that it felt really exciting. So I think that's where I kind of thought, yes, this is this is the right place for me and I want to kind of pursue trying to direct. I'm fascinated by the deal that you made with yourself the, uh, about uh, su- uh, sustaining yourself through theatre by the age of 30. I just have a couple of quick questions about that. When did you make that deal with yourself? And secondly, where did your knowledge that it would be a hard path to follow come from? I think that that knowledge came very, very, very quickly. That um, the, the knowledge that it was a hard path, and I and I think also it's a false, it was a false deal or false sort of Faustian pact because, of course, if you only, um, you know, if you go from being a student to then working, you know, and being an usher and doing all of those sort of jobs, your idea of um of supporting yourself solely through theatre is is the equivalent of living as a student forever so um so it kind of it wasn't um you know so I maybe I could sort of just about support myself through theatre but it was kind of very um hand-to-mouth sort of peripatetic existence but I think I knew that I was very lucky at the beginning that when I got this job at the Royal Court that it was unpaid and that the only reason I could do it was because my parents lived in London and I could live with them. And I was really acutely aware that that was a false scenario um, and that I was very privileged in that in that sense. I think I was really conscious that it was I was working in theatre, but I was being supported by my parents because I was able to live with them. And so I kind of knew that there was a massive undertaking to be able to earn enough money to be able to kind of pay my own rent and and things like that and it was just very clear to me from the amount of money that then when I did start earning money um temping using my using my touch typing skills and things like that that you know that that what you earn in a you know a lot of the early work that I did particularly assisting was unpaid and that um it it would never it would it wouldn't it would never work that always have to be kind of um allied revenue streams of um, different jobs and temping and and things that I was doing in order to support myself so I knew that um, it was going to take time and I think I was happy to give that time and also I think when you make that pact with yourself at 22 30 seems so far away that you can't imagine ever being 30 so it felt like I'd given myself a long a long lead-in time but actually I'm not sure it was that much time I think it takes a long time and I think it's even harder now than it was when I was when I was starting out if I could just take you back to when you were starting to think about becoming a theatre director and you were working at the Royal Court, a, a question I've been asking everyone on this podcast that I speak to is obviously there are emerging and early career uh, directors and theatre makers out there who will listen to this, who uh, have suddenly have a lot of time on their hands. So I was wondering, at that period of your life, were there any um, resources or books that were particularly important to you that you think it would be worthwhile people exploring? That's a really good. That's a really good question, and 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 you know, I guess my the the really good piece of advice that I got given is not really appropriate for these COVID quarantine times. But I will share it anyway, in the hope that one time at one point we will be out of this. Um, which is which is Graham Wybra, who was the then literary manager of the Royal Court. He knew that I was writing love letters you know kind of to all the directors I admired saying please I really love your work I'd love to assist you and you know in the knowledge that quite often those letters do not get a rip you you write you write the letters to people who you really admire but you don't get a response and that's understandable and he and he said something really useful which is that I could learn as much from watching directors work in previews and seeing how they were changing their changing the show according to 
the need the needs of the uh, of the of the production but also kind of responding to an audience and so I really um and I was doing ushering anyway but it kind of made me really sort of appreciate that actually watching the the first few previews of a show you could really even though you weren't maybe in the room with that director by seeing how they changed the costumes or the staging or the sound or the orders of the scenes or cut scenes you could learn a lot about what their process was so I found um ushering incredibly edifying in that I was learning I was I was kind of in the theatre with with that um audiences learning about audiences responding and responding and earning some money but also being able to kind of see choices that directors were making in action in terms of books and things that I read that I loved and I and I guess sort of now there are so many theatres offering live streaming of shows that even if they're not you're not able to see the previews of them I do think it's an amazing opportunity to see as much live performance as possible and I've always loved the um the NT live and watching kind of operas from around the world and just being able to consume as much stuff so now that we can potentially do it from our our living rooms and from our computers I think that is a good it's a great time to in this hibernation moment to kind of learn and study and be prepared for when we um emerge and in terms of books that I was kind of reading at the time, I remember reading, um, I remember really enjoying, I remember being, because I never trained as an actor and I'd never done any, been an actor, I was very, and I hadn't done a degree, you know, as a, as a theatre director, I was really conscious that I don't have any exercises, I don't have any games, theatre directors must have games. And I remember reading a lot of Keith Johnston and really enjoying his books. And I remember reading, really loving this thing that he said that, you know, it's really good to sit um, to kind of be at the same level of people so that you're kind of always you know, sitting on the floor with people who are kind of really trying to be um, close and kind of um, talking to them kind of as 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 equals and things like that and I found that really um, interesting I think I'm I think I'm still not much of a game player I think you read a lot of books and then realize that actually maybe you have to do something that works for for you but I found his books really inspiring a lot of his exercise in the game is really excellent you get your uh, your first assisting job at the Royal Court. What was what was that show? That was a show that Roy Williams wrote called Fallout, um, that Ian Rickson directed and Alts designed. Um, and they it was one of the first times that the Royal Court the theatre was kind of transformed into an in the round space, sort of like a like a boxing ring. And um, it was a beautiful um, a beautiful design, and it was a really amazing opportunity to assist Ian, who is I think a fantastic director and I really loved learning from him about his process and how he forms a company and he's a great game player he's kind of does lots of exercises and plays volleyball and is sort of you know really good at creating those company spirits. And when was it that you started making your own work? I didn't feel confident to make my own work for a long time and also didn't have the money to do so so I um, I think I assisted for two or three I assisted for two and a half years and then I in that uh, and then I raised the money to put on my first show by again writing lots of love letters to people whose work I admired or people who I th- sort of thought would remember what it was like to be starting out in theatre and asking them to support my sort of support this kind of fledgling project. And so I, di- I directed that sort of when I was probably 24, 25. And that was kind of two and a half years after leaving university. And where was um, that? And that was at the... Um, former Southwark play oh not the former Southwark play but but the um original Southwark playhouse um in its kind of smaller smaller venue um and and I think it was um it was a play that I had found that I'd read in French and I felt like I didn't know enough writers at the time and definitely didn't have the money to commission and that was a very false 
um, economy. So I translated it myself, which is really stupid because A, I'm not a writer, I'm definitely not a translator, and I didn't enjoy doing it. But also I think I didn't realise that actually when you're starting out, there are lots of other people starting out as well and that there might have been some emerging writers that I could have found that would have loved to translate a play and would have really enjoyed that collaboration. And I really regret doing it on my own because it meant that I spent too much time, I think, concentrating on on the version of the play and not enough time thinking about directing it and how to do it. And I wasn't, I don't think it, I was very, dis, I don't think I did, made a very good debut production. And I, I wish I'd sort of had, I'd realised that um, I think I felt really creatively isolated at that point and I wish I'd realized that if I felt that way probably other people felt that way and I could reach out to people and there might be a writer who would want to kind of embark on that project and that would have been the start of a relationship that would have been really positive but that's what learning is that you learn you learn from each of your shows and so that's what hindsight is uh yeah absolutely and you said that um you didn't feel ready to make your own work for uh, a little while um how how did it feel when you uh, when you got the money together to make that first play and you uh, you built your team and you walked into the rehearsal room? Were you excited with their with their trepidation? What was what was what was going on then? Yeah, I think both. I mean, I, I I do I do love I do love that feeling of being on work experience and feeling at the exponential part of the learning curve where you just don't know how to do what you've next got to do. I think that is the thrill seeking that I have in my life that I love setting myself new challenges so that feeling that I had for that first going into rehearsals for that first show of kind of utter terror and nausea is something that I think I crave I still kind of try and create every time I go not not because I want to feel sick but because I want to know that I'm trying to do something that I haven't done before and I'm really testing myself um but I don't know if I knew that I was ready I think I just felt that I'd I'd assisted quite a lot by that stage and I think I felt keen to put some things into into practice, that there was only so much um, living vicariously or watching from the sidelines that I could do before I had to test some things out for myself. So I think that's how I knew that I was ready to at least have a go, not necessarily less ready to no longer assist. And actually, I continued assisting for quite some time after doing my first few shows and then even after being at the gate theatre I went back and did some assisting when I felt that I was a bit stuck in my process and wanted to sort of reinvigorate it and obviously there'll be people out there listening to this who are um as you did back then uh, who are making their own work and pulling money together like you did and putting their own shows on what was the um how did the progression happen to you between uh, from being a, a director making their own work in off West End and fringe venues to uh, working in established venues and having artistic directors offer you shows? How did that happen? I mean, I think I'm still in the process. And I think often when you look at someone's, um, you know, when you look at someone's CV and even the sense of a curriculum vitae, you know, this kind of like ladder of life, it looks linear. But when you're living it, it's not linear. It's like you're constantly at the end of a cliff. You're like, oh, I'll clearly never work again. There's no point in buying a diary for next year. There'll never be any, there'll never be any more work. And I think that's how it felt after doing that first show, particularly because I was really unhappy um, with it. And I just thought, well, I'll just have to continue temping and I'll figure out a new, a new career choice. And it was only that I was very lucky that I had applied I'd applied for the previous two years I'd applied for the James Mingus Kitchen Directors Award and I'd applied for it before this show had opened 
and I had been shortlisted. So I was kind of already in the process. And I think if I hadn't, if I wasn't in that process, I probably wouldn't have had the confidence to apply because doing this first production had knocked my confidence so, so much. And so I kind of then, you know, was then shortlisted and went to the, became a, went to the kind of weekend um, for the finalists and stuff. So I was kind of, it was sort of very, very lucky that I ended up receiving that award that year because I think otherwise I probably would have bowed out and felt that I wasn't, I wasn't cut out for this um, because I was so, yeah, um, not, my confidence was so knocked by having made that show and not feeling that I'd got it. I'd kind of known what, what I was doing enough. And so it was good that I'd already applied for this, for this other show because it meant that I was sort of already in that, in that process and also my family had just gone bankrupt at that point so I think I was in a in a place where I was thinking I've really got to sort of try and get a proper job where I can earn and support people and make a decent living and so I was kind of think my brain was very much focused on other things and so then I found finding out that I'd been shortlisted for this thing actually gave my mum in particular so much sucker that something positive was happening in this very bleak time that I sort of ended up pursuing going to the kind of you know working on the designs and going to the finalists weekend not really thinking anything would happen but just thinking that there was something it was worth pursuing because there was another there was a larger force at work suggesting that I should continue on that on that path and so it was yeah it was just a very fortuitous thing that I because I wouldn't have been able to raise the money to do another show I sort of used up all of the potential avenues of kind of trying to write and apply for funds so um the, the the amazing gift and opportunity of the James Mingus Kitchen Award kind of giving me some money to do a production was um was something that really changed things. After that, I didn't do any work for ages. So I kind of then did another show, which I was much happier with. They were two Beckett shorts and I felt like I had acquitted myself better with those and had concentrated on the directing part and the conceptualizing and, and those went well. And I think I thought, oh, well, now, you know, the phone will ring. I've invited people to see the show. The phone will ring and I'll have other shows. And actually there was nothing and so for a year and a half after that I directed at some drama schools and did a lot a lot a lot of temping and then thought actually I'm gonna I'm gonna quit because there's no I'm not managing to make this work I can't find any work as a director it's not happening and then just as about as I just as I was about to sort of go right this is the end actually Dominic Cook who I had known when I was um this graduate trainee at the Royal Court and he'd been an associate director he'd then been made artistic director and he got in contact and asked if I wanted to direct a play for the Young Writers Festival at the Royal Court and so if it weren't for him and that opportunity I would I would not be directing anymore because I I felt like there were no it wasn't ever going to happen. There's um, a running theme in these conversations that I've been having that pretty much everyone I talk to uh, has mentioned the uh, unpredictable and non-linear career path and that uh, just every time just when you thought you were that was it that uh, something came along to pull you to pull you back in I I think that's um I think that's really interesting I just wonder um cast your mind back to uh that difficult period when you were applying for uh the JMK award and going through that process and just uh, unpick that process if you can I know it was a while ago now just a little bit because I think a lot of people uh, come across that award and find uh, the process a little bit foreboding a little bit unforgiving any uh, tips or advice that you could give people who are perhaps thinking about the JMK or other such awards yeah really- I mean I- 
I'm not sure I have advice I can sort of certainly sort of speak to my experience of it. I applied for it three times. The first time I think I got I think I got to the second to the second round, which meant that you um you kind of had to sort of collaborate with a designer and present a design. I got long listed, I think that was. And then this the next time I got to the finalist weekend and was the runner up. And then the, the third time I was lucky enough to receive it and and I think that first application process because it's a written application I think it can feel really daunting because I think the reason so many of us want to be directors is because actually writing isn't our medium and we don't want to express ourselves through words we want to sort of create living pictures that kind of audiences can experience so actually having to do something that is written can feel very intimidating so what I what I often think is a good idea to think about is that think about the production that you want to do and talk to your flatmate about it and just really try and inspire them with why you want to do it and do that over your kitchen table or do that in the pub and record it on your smartphone and listen back to it and transcribe that and then you can work from that to write the written application because I think the idea of opening a word document and trying to write it can feel so intimidating because that's you know that people come to directing from so many different backgrounds and that can a written application can feel incredibly academic when I think actually it doesn't have to be. I think it's just a very shorthand, it's a shorthand way to try and get across as many people's ideas as possible. And I think if there were a different way of doing it, and sometimes some organisations do lightning talks or different ways, there are different ways of getting to know lots of different directors and their visions. But I think if you can do a positive mental reframe on it and think actually this written part of the application is just them trying to get a sense of me and my ideas, then find a way that you might be able to do that. And I think sometimes just talking to somebody else about it is a way of understanding how you think and how you want to make that show and them asking you questions where they're confused or things is also helpful and then that can be a starter for 10 about how you might decide to write it up because once once you're through that part of the process the rest of the process I think is actually much more familiar to directors and also much more in their comfort zone you know working with a, a designer is a really positive thing to start those relationships and start those collaborations and then the finalist weekend is a wonderful opportunity to meet your peers and your colleagues you know fellow directors who you'll be seeing over the course of your your career but also a chance to work with actors on your chosen play on scenes and excerpts from it so that bit I think all feels much more within within the the remit of what you might know or be familiar with as a director so I think that first obstacle of the of the written application is the thing to try and try and surmount that's that's great and super useful thank you very much um and so you win the uh, the jmk award in uh, 2005 and you do the, the beckett shorts play and not i uh and then obviously you mentioned you do the uh, the uh, show as part of the young writers festival at the royal court and then not long after that uh you become co-artistic director of the Gate Theatre in Notting Hill. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, that process and uh, yeah, um, what that yeah, was like? I, mean, I have no idea how that happened. That seems completely miraculous to me, particularly when I'm talking to you now and saying there was no work, I had no confidence, I was about to quit. Yet somehow, in the kind of youthful exuberance of being 27, um, Carrie Cracknell, who I'd met on the National Theatre Studio Director's Course three years earlier and who we'd had we'd just got on really well and felt very similarly about theatre and what we wanted to make. And we, um, 
I don't know, we just decided that we would apply as a as a duo. And we didn't even explain why we wanted to be a duo in our application. We just presented it as a kind of as a as a fact. And 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 I don't know how I, I don't know how we had the sort of temerity to to apply really because there was no experience um between us but I think we both loved that venue and felt really inspired by it and really wanted to make work in it and and I think we were just incredibly lucky that the board um took a punt on us and kind of gave us an opportunity to make our mistakes in public and sort of take the gate in into this um direction sort of more maybe dance theatre and kind of collaboration across um, mediums that we that we really wanted to pursue but it was a very um yeah I, I, I'm amazed that I would not I, you know when I look back I kind of can't believe that I that we both applied for it um, and then suddenly we're given this opportunity to run an organization and we'd run you know that was three quarters of a million where we'd not run anything other than our student overdrafts um so it was um yeah it was kind of a miracle that we that we got it and I feel very delighted that we applied in that kind of innocence and positivity and it it is a clarion call to me to kind of go you should just go for things you never know you may get them you may not but if you don't apply that's the only way you won't get it like people don't tend to knock on your bedroom door and go oh we'd really love you to do this you have to put yourself in the ring and I think that is a good a good thing to do and I guess maybe that's what we did I just yeah can't believe that we did and how how long were you there for was it four years five years we were there for five years, so 2007 to 2012. How how do you remember that time? Was it was it fun running that building? I remember it really fondly. Um, it was incredibly fun and fierce and feral. I mean, it was just um, lots of very young people with lots of enthusiasm and no experience trying to kind of find their way. And um, we 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 did, and we made lots of mistakes. Oh, I'm so sorry. Just a second. Let me see if I can. Ah, oh, quell this. Um, yeah. So we made, you know, um, we were just all finding our feet, and that is a kind of that makes for a lot of camaraderie and a lot of positivity and a lot of a lot of kind of stress as well. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't easy. Um, but it was, um, yeah, it was a brilliant, brilliant time. Uh, there was some really uh exciting work then. I mean, in in particular, uh, I think you were you were giving opportunities to early career writers to have a go at making versions of the classic plays. Uh, I think uh, in particular, I I came to see your production of Vanya, which was the first time I'd ever encountered Sam Sam Holcroft, uh, and I thought that oh, was wow, amazing. Um, uh, yeah, I thought it was brilliant, uh, and I still do. Um, uh, and uh, so, yeah, was that was that a deliberate a deliberate thing where you were where you were thinking that uh, we'd we'd give early career writers the opportunities uh, to have a go at making versions of these classics, the kind of opportunities that writers usually have to wait until they're more established in their careers for. Yes, exactly. I think that's, that's very much the case, and I think it probably it it harks back to what I was saying about that first production that I did where I didn't collaborate with another writer and realized that actually there would be lots of writers who who are looking for opportunities and would like the opportunity to to work on classic texts and it's a very traditional renaissance um concept of imitatio that you would work you would kind of learn to you would learn your craft through looking at the craft of other of other writers um in in advance of the kind of in the renaissance they'd be looking at all the all the classical writers and i think we felt that we we were in a position to give opportunities to write so we really wanted to look at the at kind of lots of classical european texts in particular and give 
opportunities to, as you say, emerging writers to have a have a go at a sort of an Ibsen or a or a Chekhov that they might not be given the chance to do for many years to come. So it felt like we were really keen um, to bring all the creatives, uh, the new generation of creatives, up with us. So kind of wanting to kind of find new designers and new and new writers. And I feel like that was one of the most exciting gifts of that of that period of being able to to work with so many talented people I wonder if we can just switch now and uh, talk about process for a little bit what does obviously it will change from project to project but um, what are the uh, the uh, structural musts of a first week in your rehearsal room Gosh, structural must. I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like I feel like every time I'm sort of re- restarting that process, every time I'm trying to do something different. I like to, I, you know, and I sometimes do a read through, and I sometimes don't, and we sometimes do some um, analysis of the analysis of the text, and we sometimes jump straight in and start kind of staging. So I think I change it up quite a lot. Something I do really like to do though is try and create something at the beginning of the week of that first week where we are all um, trying to figure out what we want to achieve with this production and how the process can work to make that happen. And so we sort of almost create our own um, our own um, rules, I guess, of how we want to work. And some of them are kind of really simple about kind of respect and timekeeping and collaboration. And some can be more um, particular to that, to that show and that show's needs. So, for instance when we did Anna last year, which was a sound experiment that was that the audience um, experienced through headphones, um, we knew going into it that it was going to be quite a difficult process in terms of the experiment and making it that the actors were going to be behind, behind glass and often sound was going to be the primary thing that, you know, that, that we would have to be looking for the right sound that sometimes wouldn't necessarily be what you would do naturally from a character perspective. And so we were sort of um, I sort of brought up the principle of the dogma 95 rules of the kind of the filmmakers um, as a kind of how they how they talked about how they wanted to make work and whether we could find our own set of rules of how we were going to work. And and that the actors were so brilliant about coming up that, with ideas of that they, we needed to play the space like a musical instrument and that we needed to be sound performance artists. And, and that was all incredibly helpful and instructive in kind of structuring the rest of the process because there were inevitably moments that were very complicated to navigate and and it was useful to sometimes go look this is the moment where we need to be the sound performance artist because actually this might not be something that you would logically do for your character but is right for the way we need to tell the story because everyone was working outside of their comfort zones you were asking actors with 35 years of experience being a you know who knew how to project to the back of the olivia you were asking them to sub vocalize and be incredibly quiet we invented a sort of term called soft enunciation where you know if if most of the time you're asking people to articulate better here we're asking people to blur the edges of words so that we couldn't hear them as distinctly in certain moments or asking a lighting designer to make it darker so that people used their ears more because they couldn't see as well or I was sort of staging things in a way that moved them for, you know, rather than placing things centre stage, the most important things we ended up staging upstage or kind of half scene because the less seen they were, the more you used your ears. So everyone was kind of out of their comfort zone. And that, those um, those sort of um, rules or guidelines that we made for ourselves in that first week really stood us in good stead. So that's probably the only thing that I always do, um, which is try and kind of create a set of 
guidelines for making the show, a set of instructions, a user manual in a way for making the show. Um, and then the rest is sort of up for grabs in terms of what the what the show needs. Sometimes they need much more physical work. You, know, you need to do much more choreography or much more um, body conditioning because they require certain things. So I try and sort of tailor that first week to what the show needs. Brilliant. Uh, I wonder... Because uh, uh, it se- it seems it seems to me the work I've uh, seen of yours uh, and hearing you talk about theatre always has um, a really robust physical language. And I know you're uh, a huge fan of dance. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about your relationship to uh, movement and how you use it in your productions. Well, thank you. That's very that's very kind. I mean, I I can't I can't move. I am so you know physically uncoordinated and so I think I have immense respect for people who can use their bodies to convey meaning and emotion and and language and I think I'm always very intrigued by forms where you don't have to translate anything so for me music and movement are the kind of the ultimate because there's no translation through another medium you don't need to find words you just it hits you or you feel something from it and I guess I'm always looking in productions to see if there's a way of being able to transcend um the kind of the more um intellectual modes of of thought and so I love to collaborate with movement directors and choreographers who can really help unleash what we can do with our with our bodies and I think that it's it can sometimes be very very simple things that wouldn't officially be classed as dance or movement but that can affect how you perceive something so for instance in the show that I was just talking about, about Anna, which was a movement, um, which was a, a sound experiment, we had Anna Morrissey, who's a long-term collaborator of mine. In fact, worked on the very first show I ever did. Um, she did the movement with it, along with an associate choreographer, Laura Cubitt. And there isn't really any movement to speak of per se, but it was it was had to be choreographed like a ballet, like a piece of music, because every single every movement that anyone did affected what someone else did everyone was kind of interconnected in a sort of hive in a way and so I think thinking of everything as movement even if it doesn't necessarily look like it's a dance sequence is is useful and that is um and I think working with a movement director who is thinking who's 100% of their brain is on the movement allows you to kind of create a, a stronger sort of movement sense where it's kind of a lot of my brain will be on the movement but it will be on a lot of other things as well and it's really brilliant if you can have a shorthand with someone who can help um you sort of deliver that vision because they're thinking solely about how to deliver something through the body um and I'm always really inspired by that because it's not something that I know how to do great um I just have a couple of quick questions for you uh before we finish up if that's okay sure. can you tell us about the last piece of art that absolutely blew your mind? Oh, what a lovely question. Um, I really, really loved going um, to see the um, Olafur Ellison exhibition, which I saw several times at the at the Tate last, last year, or it also into the start of this year, partly seeing it through a young child's eyes and how much um, she enjoyed the interaction of it, but, but mainly because of the way it spoke so beautifully about the climate crisis and how um, how we are how our world is in disrepair and there's there was a beautiful set of of I just think because of the way he has photographed things kind of growing up and then going back and seeing how the world has changed since then and how many things have been eroded 
and things I just found that incredibly moving because you it's sort of unarguable in that sense and I know there are sort of people who deny you know might deny the situation and maybe maybe there is a positive to be found in this current quarantine that we're discovering ways of interacting in a virtual way that doesn't require as much consumption of fossil fuels and as much travel but I I thought that his um his work was really articulate about about that in a very positive way and I think that that spirit of um you know that you catch more flies with honey than with vinegar is a very important thing and I found his work really moving in that sense great and finally can you uh recommend something that we can all enjoy while social distancing Oh, I just think looking at the trees, I just think just being aware of nature is something that just a moment of stillness is well, certainly that's something that I've been really conscious of, of kind of being so cooped up that kind of moments of like looking at nature and particularly that we are cooped up in, in spring and, and things are starting to grow. And so there is positivity, you know, that there are fewer planes and I feel like I can hear more birds and things like that. I'm finding that's giving me a lot of um, sucker and support in these moments. Great. Natalie, thank you very much for talking to us today. It's been a real pleasure. Oh, thank you, Craig. Thank you for listening to this specially recorded episode of the Nottingham Playhouse Playcast Amplify podcast series. To find out more about the Amplify programme or the rest of our work, visit nottinghamplayhouse.co.uk and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast for all the latest episodes as they're released. (music) 